0: So is that the last Gang of Four record or the first Shriekback record They you kind of sound the same? Is it Love
1: 1983 complete 12-inch maxi? Oh yeah, that's from a uh, Hard. <laughs> You're
0: welcome, Neil. This is hell. So, Alex, the drummer for A Gang of Four, Hugo Burnham, he is currently in a social media fight with a staff member on our show.
1: Oh, who's the staff member? <laughs> Ronaldo. Oh, I don't know who I'm backing on this one.
0: <laughs> uh, Hugo is very upset. That Ronaldo and other people are supporting Bernie Sanders, and he thinks he should go for a more centrist candidate who can definitely beat Donald Trump.
1: The drummer for Gang of Four? <laughs> yeah. oh,
0: okay. well. I forwarded this information to Thomas Frank because uh, Tom and I both have a, are big fans of Gang of Four, uh, and uh, he was shocked as well and kind of wants to know more about the discussion. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell streaming from our studio above a pool table in a bar. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap Radio show host Chuck Mertz, producing today Alex, Jerry, and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Today we're discussing the news that the news does not want you to discuss, and that's any news regarding the horrible foreign policy of the United States and its after effects. We'll be doing that in just a few minutes with journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner, who posted the Fairness and Accuracy in reporting articles, whitewashing neoliberal repression in Chile and Ecuador, and media concealed Chile's state criminality, delegitimize Bolivian democracy. And of course, we'll have the moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, but I didn't get a tease this week. Did you get one, Alex?
1: I didn't not get one. Uh, something about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I just got it. No, uh, okay. <laughs> He looks at it. Do I got to go, go look that up now? It's that thing, there's like a pyramid. Yeah. I think food's somewhere in the middle. Yeah,
0: exactly. Dairy is at one point. I know I'm supposed to eat an apple, I think. This week's question from hell is, where are you hiding your drugs? Where are you hiding your drugs? This week's winner gets the This is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive filled with 25 interviews we've done in the 2000s that are a great introduction to the show or... If you're a longtime listener to the show, it's a great recap of what we have done so far this century. You can leave your response at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Alex, do you have any more listener responses to this week's Question from Hell?
1: Oh yeah. Where are you hiding all your drugs? Where are you hiding all your drugs? Borky B says, in my beehole, duh. I, I said beehole so I don't have to edit no, anything out you. when I send it to uh, Lumpen. Chris H says, In your intestine, in your intestine, dude. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Real uh, nice. Jesse W. says... I find
0: th- that to be a violation.
1: Uh, Jesse, sa- Jesse W. says, The Cayman Islands. Braden S. says, In my hot sauce. They make stir fries taste really great and then sent us a link to uh, a 9 AU article uh, headlined, Police find $300 million of the drug ice in hot chili sauce bottles. What? $300 million. Uh, what? Nick P. says, In the deep state at <laughs> least C says in a hollowed out copy of the Mueller report,
0: Nick P in the deep state. That's really good. Uh, so I like that one, uh, Nick, uh, the deep state is great. Of the uh, other answers submitted up to this point, I really like Jay saying in the New York State Trooper Evidence Locker, Garrett replying in Chuck's studio, Benjamin's response of Joe Biden's Medicare for All plan, Greg's claim that Mel the cat hides them from me. Have you seen them? And Nathan's answer, I can't remember. Oh, and Eric saying he hides them in his bloodstream. We've had some really great responses so far this week to the question from hell. You can. Uh, Still leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Keep listening throughout today's show to see if you've won the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive. And if you don't win, you can always buy it at our store at thisishell.com when you click on the word support. So far this week, we lost all power to my studio microphone, so we had to reschedule former CIA case officer Jeffrey Sterling, author of Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Woman whistleblower Uh, Jeffrey will now be on next Friday nine days from now Friday November 22nd during a one-hour this is hell beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time that means next week's live streaming schedule will be Tuesday for two hours beginning at 2 p.m. then Wednesday and Friday next week For one hour at 10 a.m. Once Theron, our engineer got everything fixed. We were able to do Tuesday's two-hour live stream, which ended up being closer to two and a half hours. We first talked to Liza Featherstone about her article at the New Republic, Moving Beyond Misogyny, Why Do They Hate Us? Then we just barely touched on her story at Jacobin when the ruling class feared communism. At one point, Liza said something like, Outrage drives the internet, that without outrage there would be no social media, which is a shame because, again, as Liza argued, outrage is a dead end politically. The goal is to show offense in hopes of somehow shaming someone into better behavior, if not correcting and apologizing for their outrageous act. Problem is, those who do the offending are often on the right, and the right views taking offense at anything as a sign of weakness. That's why the right offends and provokes the left to reveal what they see as a weakness on the left. When the left reacts with outrage, not only doesn't it correct behavior through shaming, it also leaves the person who is outraged with nothing but outrage. No political agency, no real challenge to the structural issues that have institutionalized whatever issue the offender attacked. Which is enough to make you outraged, and you're back in the same cycle that suits the right just fine. Following that outrageous talk about misogyny, outrage, and how the end of the Cold War has meant the rolling back of civil rights in the United States, we spoke with someone we've wanted on the show forever, political theorist Wendy Brown, who is author of In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, the Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. Near as I can figure, Wendy thinks we get neoliberalism wrong when we believe that... People like Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys foresaw what the neoliberalism they were advocating would become, and that is a conglomerating of wealth and power in the hands of a few, and a rise of neo-fascism. As Wendy said of Reagan and Thatcher, they didn't think it through, but creepily, what they wanted was pretty disturbing on its own. The whole goal was to replace democracy with something else, and the something else they wanted to replace democracy with was the logic of markets bolstered by what they believed was traditional morality. They believed that once markets were no longer under the thumb of oppressive governance, it would be allowed to flourish, even democratize, so everyone could benefit from capitalism's S as all boats rise. But when traditional morality... Uh, has supported a system that is racist, sexist, patriarchal, all of the worst aspects of culture and society in the United States, aspects that are dominated by white men. What neoliberalism is really doing is enshrining the hierarchy that already existed, guaranteeing their continuing world dominance. Deregulation itself, Wendy argues, is nothing more than a process to keep white supremacy and privilege in place and unthreatened by democracy and those pesky people keep having elections that challenge their power, all of which makes neoliberalism even more frightening than I already thought it was. Then we talked to our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brian Muir. Brian edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire, and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, which are a couple of places where you can actually get real news on what is happening in Brazil. You may not know it if you watch the nightly news or CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, but Brazil's former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, also known simply as Lula, was released from prison after the Brazilian Supreme Court ruled that he could no longer be detained because his trial was not a fair trial. Lula was out, oust... Uh, <laughs> Lula was ousted in what Brian and many others, including myself, consider a coup through a overhyped corruption trial that weaponized Brazil's justice system to oust the leftist leader. I almost said Lula was outed <laughs> instead of ousted. Uh, bad typo there. Even Pope Francis has condemned U.S. actions in Brazil, calling them that, it's calling them what everyone in the world calls the process: lawfare. But not here in the States, as our free press, which has been captured by corporations, has censored the very concept of lawfare. From all of our news Worse yet Brian pointed out How the western media In particular The New York Times Is working hard To get the narrative out That Lula could go back To jail any minute now Which Brian argues Is simply not the case The Times also Tries to equate Lula With far right President Jair Bolsonaro Creating a false equivalency Between a very popular Political leader Who is challenging U.S. power in Brazil To a very unpopular leader Whose popularity Continues to slide After Lula Zaris An unpopular leader Who has has opened up the Amazon for business and destructive fires. A leader who has allowed a massive oil spill to happen and is now working hard to cover up its cause and source. An oil spill that is not being reported anywhere here in the United States. An unpopular leader whose presidency so far has provoked violence by his supporters against the political opposition that at times has turned deadly. He's even been linked to the death of of a member of the workers party an assassination that happened last year just this week and it didn't make the news here in the states if you missed yesterday's show we have posted the entire show at thisishell.com and it is available right now all of it which brings us to our next guest live from land stolen from the natives this is hell. Overthrowing democratically elected governments in South America is something the U.S. does regularly and has for quite some time. Not that you would know it if you watched, read, or listened to the vast majority of mainstream corporate establishment media outlets. Here to help us get up to date on all the coups currently perpetuated by the United States in South America. Journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner posted the fairness and accuracy in reporting articles whitewashing neoliberal repression in Chile and Ecuador and media concealed Chile State criminality delegitimize Bolivian democracy. Live from Caracas, Lucas Kerner. Lucas, how are you, sir?
2: Great to be back, Chuck.
0: It's always always great to have you on the show This is Lucas' I think it's his sixth appearance On This Is Hell Including joining us first in our studio Back up at uh, Northwestern University In August of 2017 Lucas was on here in June When we discussed another article That was filled with information That you're not going to get here in the U.S. And that article was called There's far more diversity in Venezuela's muzzled media Than in U.S. corporate press Lucas is a political analyst And editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com And is based in in Venezuela. You can follow Lucas on Twitter at LM underscore Kerner. That's K-O-E-R-N-E-R. You start by writing throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. People are rising up against right-wing U.S.-backed governments and their neoliberal austerity policies. In Chile, the government of billionaire Sebastián Piñera has deployed the army to crush nationwide demonstrations against inequality, sparked by a subway fare hike. In Ecuador, indigenous people, workers, and students recently brought the country to a standstill during 11 days of protests against the gutting of fuel subsidies by President Lenin Moreno as part of an IMF austerity package. And then, as you know, we have Sunday stepping down as president of Bolivia by Evo Morales. Ecuador and Chile appear to be uprisings against neoliberalism. If that is the case, is Bolivia then an uprising by those supporting neoliberalism? Is there a continent-wide war taking place in South America right now over neoliberalism?
2: I think that, I mean, neoliberalism has been in contention over the past two decades. I and mean, what we saw was, in a, you know, two decades ago, the people of Latin America rose up massively across the continent, beginning here in Caracas with the Caracazo in 1989, in which uh, thousands of people were massacred by the government that was supported by the United States. Then, when they they, they protested against neoliberalism, and anyway, likewise, that came to Bolivia and Ecuador. New governments were toppled. Leftist leaders came to power. Argentina mm-hmm. and now, right now, it seems like we're seeing a second round of the you know the, the largest social mobilizations that we've seen since that period in the late '90s, early 2000s, where you know the people of Chile are. You know, really contesting the, the Pinochet model, the, the neoliberal model. This is the birthplace of neoliberalism as you recently covered. And this, this you know, is an absolutely monumental you know, a, event because in Chile, th- this is considered the success story of global neoliberalism. You know, in Ecuador, likewise, people are taking to the streets. And I, I think that if anything, the Bolivia case shows that you know, this is a, a countervailing trend. This is, I don't think this is a, a mass rebellion in support of neoliberalism. I don't think it's even a mass rebellion at all. I think that what you see is very much like what you've seen in Venezuela is elements of a far-right U.S.-backed opposition, which are trying to topple, and you know, have succeeded temporarily, hopefully, in toppling a democratically elected leftist president and you know i think that in the moment you know as you saw in ecuador if this if this coup regime remains in power and begins to implement neoliberal reforms and roll back the social protections, i don't think that government will last very long if it manages to survive the next few days which remain to be seen so i think that this is definitely right now our defining moments going on bolivia but i do think that we are seeing a broad continental trend you know perhaps to move the continent back towards a progressive progressive uh, government. So it remains to be seen and things are extremely volatile uh, as as we're seeing now in Bolivia.
0: You don't see, for instance, you don't see the uprising against Evo Morales as a mass uprising. Why don't you see that as a mass uprising? Because that is the way it's being depicted here in the United States, that all the uprisings against governments that the United States does not support, they are all mass uprisings. They're certainly not just by a small click of people on the far right.
2: Again, I think in manufacturing consent, Chomsky identifies worthy and unworthy victims, you know, and and in this case, we can talk about worthy and unworthy uprisings and the uprisings in in Haiti and Ecuador and Chile are clearly unworthy and are not covered. And when they are covered, they're depicted as uh, riots, as uh, uh, looting, as violence, violent unrest, et cetera. Uh, you know, the reader had a very revealing headline a few days ago, uh, Chile's Piñera acknowledges abuses and handling of riots, or Chile's months of unrest starting to infect Latin America's peers. I mean, it's very, uh, from Bloomberg, it's very naked. But in the case of Bolivia, this was depicted as righteous anger, as you know, the, the majority of the population opposing a, an authoritarian, you know, which is a, a label, an epithet that is never used to describe Piñera, who, you know, has mobilized, who mobilized the army to the who you know, has left you know, 200 people blind in one eye you know, as a result of this criminal use of force, you know, engaging in, you know, thing in uh, methods that haven't been seen since the dirty wars of the 1970s and 80s. Yet he is not authoritarian. There are no New York Times headline, uh, op-eds or any major newspaper calling for his resignation. You know, uh, Lenin Moreno continues to be the darling of the Western press, you know, despite the numerous people that were killed and the repression there, but in Bolivia you have a, a president. Who, this is, you know, a detail that is regularly omitted. Who won re-election with? Uh, you know a margin of ten percentage points a forty seven percent of the vote so i mean this is if we're talking about Venezuela, where you know you actually have seen much larger protests of the government against the government and in many cases have been motivated by uh, you know other factors like that social economic crisis and you know there are legitimate grievances there that are you know certainly being channeled by a right wing pro u s opposition but in bolivia it's very clear that you know, while there definitely is discontent for a lot of reasons, and you know, obviously the government has made mistakes, but now is not the time to really get into that. The what's clear that's going on here is that a majority, a nearly half the country supported, uh, uh, voted to reelect this president, and you know, who has you know ran the country extremely successfully, cut cutting poverty by over 40 percent, extreme poverty by 60 percent. So I, I don't think that we can see this as a Some kind of rebellion to overturn these massive social advances that have benefited the vast majority of people, I think it definitely is a coup effort which you know it, you do have significant participation, otherwise it would not have been possible. but the key element that you know that is coming out of the reporting was the mutiny of the police in different areas beginning in Cochabamba and in other cities, and the you know the armed forces turning their backs on the government, which has not happened in Venezuela and you know uh, it's been exposed that leaders of the Bolivian military were being trained in the United States. Why that continued to happen under Evo, I have no idea, but uh, you know, that, that is, there is a U.S. connection here. So I think that you know, there definitely is a popular dimension to this that's undeniable, but to present this as a mass rebellion against you know, Evo Morales you know, is completely ridiculous given that he won you know, 47% of the vote. And you know, probably even a larger section of the country would uh, uh, oppose this coup you know, beyond just his supporters.
0: You write, one might expect these popular rebellions to receive unreservedly sympathetic coverage from international media that claim to be on the side of democracy and the common people. On the contrary, corporate journalists frequently describe these uprisings as dangerous alterations of law and order laden with violence, chaos, and unrest. Here in the States, Bernie Sanders called what has happened in Bolivia a coup, yet that did not make any mention on any nightly news program. I didn't see it in the New York Times coverage of Bolivia. The Times only mentioned the word coup once, and that was in a quote denying it was a coup by a supporter of the coup. What does it tell you about the U.S. media when it is so obsessed with anything about the 2020 presidential campaign, but ignores a leading candidate calling what took place in Bolivia a coup?
2: I mean, clearly, you have the, you know, this, this, this is the, the orthodoxy of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, you know, which is, you know, of U.S. imperialism, that you can, that these kinds of regime change operations are completely legitimate because the enemies have been, you know, basically demonized over the course of, you know, decades or years and years and presented as authoritarian as dictatorships. So, you know, the media is crucial in it. The media is the ideological heavy artillery. They you know, is battering down day after day these progressive governments, and you know, and, and you know, the, the reality is that the left in the global north has not done enough, unfortunately, to stand up to this media narrative, to try to counter it, and to try to try to create space. And you know, it's admirable that Sanders made that comment, but I think he should have taken a much clearer stance and said that it doesn't it doesn't appear to be a coup; it is a coup, as you know, at least uh, AOC did. But so I think that you clearly, you know, the media is is playing this role in you know whitewashing, you know, these regime change efforts, you know, no matter where they are. And I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious that no mainstream media has uh, come out to unequivocally identify this as a coup, you know, ha- as they have done in uh, other other situations. You know, when it comes to uh, U.S. Uh, regimes that are being uh, U.S. client regimes that are facing uh, threats from the military or Elsewhere. And you know, their favorite technique in, in doing this is to, to try to get around it, is where they'll, they'll, say, they'll instead of actually, uh, you know, so, sometimes they won't even mention the word coup, but in other cases they'll attribute it to the opposition denying it or to Evo Morales claiming that there's a coup. Evo Morales claims there's a coup, and, you know, therefore, but Evo Morales has been so demonized by, in the majority of the article, referring to him as authoritarian or detailing, you know, unnamed critics. Uh, criticizing his uh, practices, and you know it's the same thing with uh, you know th- that automatically coming from his mouth, it's immediately delegitimized. And it's the same thing with sanctions is that as well as you know Ferris documented that they're never mentioned. They're only mentioned as an accusation from Nicolas Maduro, who has been ceaselessly satinized.
0: There's an indigenous component when it comes to Evo Morales and what's taking place in Bolivia, and that seems to be the case in Ecuador as well. Uh, Evo Morales was the first Bolivian uh, president to be elected who was indigenous, and I believe the first South American leader who was indigenous, who was elected president of their country. I might be wrong about that. Uh, But uh, so how how much of a racial component that is anti-indigenous are the is boiled into these coups? How much is there a racial component? As much is there as much a racial component as there is a neoliberal component?
2: I think I think that both both come together in the person of Luis Fernando Camacho, who is the leader of the Santa Cruz Civic Committee. Santa Cruz is there's an uh, there's called the Bolivian Half Moon. It's a series of eastern provinces the eastern lowlands where bolivia's white um, mestizo settler elite lives where most of the gas reserves are and you know this is an elite that that sought with us support to secede in 2008 you know in an effort to undermine the government you know, with the us ambassador actively supporting this and you know they have you know there's been uh, assassination attempts that have been um uh, coming from that area, but uh, Camacho, he first of all is a, a mogul. He's a, he is a you know, own, owns numerous companies. He's been uh, linked to the Panama Papers, of engaged in uh, tax fraud. But he's also a uh, virulent Christian fundamentalist. And he you know, on on Sunday, you know, the image of him coming into the presidential palace and laying a Bible on top of the Wimfala. The Wimfala is the Bolivian indigenous uh, flag. It's the symbol of you know, Bolivia's indigenous majority, and Evo Morales, who was the first indigenous president, he made that symbol, a national symbol, alongside Bolivia's uh, previous national, its existing national flag. And, you know, as you see, you, you these right-wing, these far-right uh, fascist groups, and I don't use fascist lightly, because many of these groups, like the Santa Cruz Civic Committee and others, actually engage in in uh, fascist, uh, you know, Hitler, seed hails that there there are, you know, there's. Croatian expats who, who came over after World, uh, during World War II and after, who were linked to the the Nazi collaborationist government there. So there, there really is a you know, Klaus Barbie, who was a Gestapo torturer, later turned CIA asset, who worked in the Operation Condor program that was disappearing leftists throughout the military regimes in Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. You know, he he was. A living in this, this, this region. So, I mean, this is, this is a hotbed of literally fascist uh, Christian fundamentalism that is very you know, viscerally racist, you know, has Camacho and now the newly self-proclaimed president of Bolivia, uh, Janine uh, Añez, they have, you know, accused the indigenous people, of, of, you know, of, of, of satanic rituals and, you know, this, the, the Pachamama, which is the, the deity of the earth of the indigenous people. They, they, they call it a satanic uh, god and, you know, basically have pledged to cleanse it from the country. So I think that and clearly the religious component and this, this is kind of a, an analog to Brazil. To, uh, Bolsonaro, that as you were talking about in the intro, that that, that clearly this this this, this extremely hardline fundamentalist Catholicism, Evangelicism, that you know, is hostile to any form of leftism, any form you know, of feminism, of equality, of people of color, and is willing to engage in extreme violence to to literally exterminate them. You know, and this, their goal. Evo agreed just to, to new elections, and then they, they pushed the goalposts further. And stepped out. he stepped down. He stepped down, and the violence continued. This reveals that this was never about any kind of democratic transition. This was about exterminating MAS, which is Evo Morales' Socialist Party, as a political movement, and turning back the clocks to the time before Evo Morales, when the this white elite ruled with impunity. They sold off the country to multinational corporations in Bolivia. The the president in the 1990s, uh, literally did not speak English. I mean, excuse me, did not speak Spanish. He, he, Spanish was his second language. He spoke Spanish with a, an American accent because he lived most of his time in the United States. I mean, this was the period before Evo Morales. It was a paradise uh you know a looter's paradise for transnational or as bob Marley would say you know a, a pimpers paradise for uh, multinational corporations. as was venezuela before chavez and there are important parallels between the opposition in venezuela to the opposition of bolivia the opposition in Venezuela likewise mounted a violent coup in 2002 in which you know you're saying a similar play playbook they uh, sought to in fact kill the president and engage in absolutely atrocious acts of violence against Chavistas.
0: So we recently talked to um, a couple of former Christian evangelicals, uh, Adam Kotzko and Tad DeLay, and both of them were telling us about how horrible Christian evangelicalism is, how it doesn't really mind that it contradicts itself, how it revels in the idea of provoking and offending other people. It doesn't certainly hold themselves up to Christian standards. They see even doing that as being blasphemous. And yet Christian evangelicalism membership within Christian evangelicalism here in the United States keeps dwindling and dwindling and both argue that's making it more and more dangerous. How much of what is taking place in South America? Well, you, know, if, you know, we talked about this being a battle over neoliberalism, we talked about this being a racist battle over against the indigenous. How much is it an exporting of the horrors of American Christian evangelicalism that we can see every Sunday morning on our TV, but we just ignore, we just turn a blind eye to it? To what extent is this an invasion of an exporting of Christian evangelicalism into South America?
2: I cannot speak about this as an expert I think but you can you can note that within the last few decades in Latin America there has been a massive penetration of evangelical churches from the United States that have gained important footholds throughout the continent and you know, in fact uh, have you know in Venezuela at least you know evangelicals are some 40% of the population and you know, in Brazil there're also a large number I'm not sure about Bolivia and you know, they tend to have very far right politics in many cases but I think that, of course, it's, I don't think it's just—it's a completely exogenous factor. I mean, obviously, it responds to the other decadence of the Catholic Church, which, you know, following the uh, the war on liberation theology that was waged by the United States and its military dictatorships and authoritarian regimes throughout the hemisphere, the killing of dozens and dozens of priests in Central America, et cetera. That. Yeah, you know, and subsequently the imposition of this—you know—this new, more uh, uh, right-wing, uh, revanchist Catholic Church. And yeah, which we're seeing its its utter moral bankruptcy with this uh, this unending scandals of pedophilia that that opened the way for evangelicism. Of course, it hasn't. You know, it's important to note that at least in Brazil and in Venezuela, in the beginning, in the early years of both of those progressive governments, the evangelicals actually were a partner in the coalition. So I think that it's it's definitely more complex, and there there are. Po- I think that you have to understand evangelism, evangelicism, kind of responding to. Just just the utter uh, you know, devastation, social devastation of neoliberalism, where did the privatization of, of services, basically the destruction of the commons, of uh, where the only way to engage with other human beings is through uh modes of consumption through uh purchasing uh commodities etc where you know in chile is clearly the you know the, the the paradigm of this transformation the paragon of this transformation and that you know as a result organizations like the evangelical church and you know the the drug cartels in mexico etc you know they provide the, these kinds of social links that are simply, are being literally, uh, eviscerated by, uh, neoliberal capitalism. And, you know, as such, you know, but these are the same, you know, not only that, but before, you know, there was a the crushing of, the workers' movement and of left-wing parties, which paved the way for this. So I think that you know the only the only and in Bolivia, this is exactly why these evangelicals are going after the the movement towards socialism, party and the indigenous organizations, the unions, etc., because they do provide you know strong you know dense ties. A social links between working class people and provide an alternative, uh, alternative worldview an alternative mode of organization that you know challenges that that is you know p- perhaps it looks towards a emancipatory alternative and that's why right now they're attempting they are rounding up leftists in Bolivia and you know and, and killing them so I mean this is it's very evident.
0: Why do you think the U.S. media would be so supportive of U.S. foreign policy and simultaneously have so much scrutiny and criticism of domestic policy? Why does that scrutiny and criticism stop when it comes to our borders and all of a sudden when, we're, when you see U.S. journalists covering uh, foreign nations and foreign policy, all of a sudden they seem completely fine with uh, having no scrutiny and completely supporting the United States government and its foreign policy?
2: Well, I think that if you look at the U.S. domestic coverage, I think that there's a lot of evidence to show that there has been very little scrutiny in in terms of uh, what is going on in the United States. The you uh, you know, given the the war against whistleblowers, the, the, the surveillance state, et cetera, you know, the, the fact that, you know, no journalists are actually really looking to, to stick their neck out for Julian Assange or, you know, for this matter, Max Blumenthal, who was recently uh, detained for two days on completely false uh, libelous. Uh, assault charges and no journalist, uh, spoke out against this. I mean, this would happen to a associated press reporter or any other, uh, Jorge Ramos for that matter. You know, this would be a, an international scandal. So I think that, you know, in the United States, like, Internationally, you know, there is an alignment between corporate journalists and the U.S. establishment consensus. And obviously, there's a lot of been written about this in terms of manufacturing consent by Chomsky and other works that seek to uh, they seek to update this. But you know, clearly, the fact that corporations control the vast majority of media, you know, in the United States, there are some six corporations that own all media that. You know, advertising plays such a fundamental role that the, the kind of ex the journalists you know are themselves professional class elites who you know once they survive the weeding out process tend to spontaneously identify and believe uh, their own propaganda and you know the, the experts whom they they cultivate and they rely on that they are so afraid of alienating because then they will not have sources and they don't have the budgets to actually go out and do the real kind of autonomous. Uh, investigative journalism that needs to be done to hold the state accountable, which, you know, they are unable and unwilling to do. And I, I can also add just the, the, the ideology of, you know, U.S. imperialism of, you know, anti-communism, anti-socialism, et cetera, which, you know, is clearly just pervades the United States.
0: So uh, if I was trying to defend the journalists, the U.S. journalists in country, the Western media representatives who are in country in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, Chile, um, would it, could I defend them by saying they're simply duped, that they are being sold some right-wing narrative in Venezuela, that the right in Venezuela or Bolivia or Ecuador or wherever is just better at getting their property Propaganda and more effective with their propaganda when they target it at Western journalists than the left is. Could I? Could I? Can I at least try to excuse them for being simply duped, or am I going too far?
2: I think that in in some case, I I, I do think that in some cases they believe their own propaganda. But I think you have to understand that the social milieu in which they're living, which Western correspondents inhabit in places like Rio de Janeiro or La Paz or Caracas is they inevitably, particularly in Venezuela, given the insecurity, et cetera, they end up in these extremely privileged upper middle-class bastions, these green zones, where the only people they interact with are other professional-class elites who are militantly anti-Chavista. And that given that many cases they don't even speak Spanish and they're unwilling to go out Side of these bastions, they don't want to write anything that will alienate these people. So I think that, you know, I I don't think that we can just write them off saying that they're completely duped. I think these people are, that that all the information is out there. If they wanted to go after and go out and get it, they could. You know, as I expose. Uh, Ernesto Londoño, in, in the case of uh, tweeting about the, the, these the, supposed the violence going on in Bolivia after the election, at the same time that you have these absolutely horrible atrocities that are being that are literally getting hundreds, you know, over a hundred thousand views in each video going on in Chile at the exact same time. I mean, this is it. Clearly, it responds to you know, a, 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 I think a calculation on the part of these journalists that they know what is going to sell. They know what. You know, is is the acceptable uh, line that you can push, and if you're going to go off and you know, uh, unduly expose the uh, the absolutely uh, murderous policies that are uh, in of the Piñera government in Chile, or you know, any other you know, in Brazil, elsewhere, or what's going on with the coup government and Bolivia then you, know, you risk first of all alienating your sources you know it's interesting that you're just looking at the coverage of the self-proclaimed president in Bolivia that they, she's being described you know as a woman's rights activist, as a television presenter, as a qualified lawyer you know, and I, I think that the calculation here is, if they go out and present her as she is and, you know, literally show the racist tweets where she is calling indigenous people, uh, calling their ritual satanic, et cetera, then they're going to possibly lose a future interview with her. And other networks will get it. So I think that they're, you know, they're betting on the fact that Washington's people will come out on top. And therefore, it's always better to cultivate a good relationship with the empire's
0: puppets. The dominant narrative fed to the public is that Pinera's government has been inept in responding to the protests. According to The Economist, you cite The Economist, Reuters, New York Times, and as you write, but he's never seen as criminal or cruel. What is missed when he's seen as inept? What do you think the narrative is that The Economist, Reuters, and New York Times are trying to establish by saying that he's inept and ignoring the other aspects of what you see as his criminality and cruelty?
2: Well, I think we can take a perfect example, for example, with the U.S. media coverage of, for example, the Vietnam War or the Iraq War, that these are presented as mistakes. These are presented as errors, as blunders, as Obama famously said about the Iraq War, but never as war crimes, as crimes against humanity, as wars of aggression. And this automatically legitimizes, humanizes the criminals and who made mistakes, which are forgivable, who can be, and they can thus be rehabilitated as George Bush is currently being rehabilitated and is palling around with Ellen DeGeneres and Michelle Obama. In the same way, Sebastian Piñera is not a criminal, is not someone who should be impeached. You know, it's not a dictator as the editorial boards of countless newspapers and op eds say about Nicolas Maduro or you know, about other uh, leftist leaders like Daniel Ortega, but he is, you know, incompetent, is a nap you know he's he's innocent. He he just is incapable of managing the situation. And you know the protests are they're, they're violent, you know r- rioters and vandals out there. And he had took a heavy-handed response. And this contrasts completely with the the depiction of the Venezuelan government's response to the protests in uh, in 2017 or earlier this year, which are always you know a crackdown, always repression. And it's interesting because. You never see the, the victims in Chile. They're, they're, they're unworthy victims. So their names are never reported. You never have any kinds of profile pieces, humanizing them, uh, talking to their parents, which you always, you know, you've had frequently in Venezuela in 2017. So they're clearly, it, it, it's, a, it's a stark distinction. It's a stark moral distinction to paint someone as uh, inept as opposed to, you know, criminal and, you know, liable for, you know, prosecution before a tribunal, if not, you know, uh, impeached and imprisoned.
0: One of the things that has just recently happened, well, you write, for the most part, the op-ed pages of major Western newspapers continue to ignore or whitewash the crimes of the Piñera government. A rare exception is a hard-hitting Washington Post op-ed and by Rodrigo Espinosa Troncoso and Michael Wilson Becerril denouncing the state's brutal repression and pointing to Chile's anti-democratic Pinochet-crafted constitution as the problem. Rodrigo Espinoza-Ternosco is a professor of political science at Universidad Diego Portales in Santiago, Chile. Michael Wilson-Bessarillo is a scholar completing a book manuscript on resistance to extractivism in Latin America. Their article was headlined, Chile Will Never Make Progress under Pinochet's constitution. So, now that the headlines are in the New York Times that Pinera has decided that he will do some rewriting of the constitution, there will be some sort of constitutional conven- convention, will the US media, will western media now just move on that Pinera has agreed to change the constitution?
2: I think the media cycle has already moved on that Chile has, you know, even though you you saw two days of extremely militant, you know, mass general strike on uh, Monday and Tuesday that literally brought the country to a halt, the media is too focused on Bolivia. And of course, this is the structure of our 24-hour news cycle that, you know, can never deal with multiple stories and that, you know, instantly you turn the page to something new. So I think, you know, the, the page has already been turned on Chile. This is no longer considered a real, you know, hot story. And, you know, as a result, you know, it's it's simply not going to be covered. You know, Piñera is not going to be scrutinized. His his brutal response is not going to be covered. And it's important to recognize that it's not just the media here. It's also the Organization of American States, which is, you know, the U.S.'s, you know, imperial enforcer, you know, that legitimates crews in, in, in the region while uh, at the same time justifying uh, fraudulent elections in U.S. client states. So the Organization of American States, you know, uh, in in Bolivia, they, first of all, Evo allowed them to observe, which was probably an incredible error, but they pr- produced a report on uh, uh, their, their spokesperson said on October 21st that there had been serious fraudulent uh, uh, irregularities in the vote, uh, manipulations, and that you know, therefore, it, it should be investigated. There was no evidence for this. There was no basis for this statement, and you know, it, it was absolutely irresponsible, and it was clearly a very callous maneuver to delegitimize this election. So the the organization of America states has been instrumental. So have the international human rights organizations like uh, Human Rights Watch, human rights, human rights Human Rights Watch. Excuse me, Ken Roth. You have; they have been, you know, tweeting nonstop, accusing uh, MAS supporters in Bolivia of engaging in violence, of, of the government engaging in, uh, the, the Morales government before it was overthrown, engaging in a crackdown. Yet they have been silent on Chile and it's the international. So, so it's not just the media, but you also have these other uh, kind of uh, political and uh, ideological tools of U.S. imperialism to, uh, you know, present worthy victims in one case and unworthy victims in another case, which is clearly the people of Chile who are being brutalized by the regime there.
0: You write, notwithstanding the OAS's blatant bias, Evo Morales has authorized the OAS to carry out an audit of the election results, which the opposition has revealingly opted to boycott. Is that audit currently moving forward?
2: No, the audit was complete. In fact, the opposition boycotted the audit because they refused, they wanted to be able to control it. They didn't want it to be in the hands of the government and the OAS. But the audit came out and the OAS released a report, which basically repeated what it said earlier, that there had been manipulation, yet they presented no actual hard evidence, statistical or otherwise, to substantiate that allegation. And the Center for economic policy research has done an extensive report looking at the all public uh, vote tallies and shows that there was no uh, manipulation. I mean, in, in every regime change operation, there's always a foundational myth that, you know, it is implanted in the media, repeated ad nauseum mm-hmm. to justify the coup attempt. In, in Venezuela, it was that the, because the election last year was rigged, that the opposition boycotted, there was no evidence that it was in any way rigged. That gets repeated in Ecuador. It was that the able, the Rafael Correa government had, had, um, had amassed a, a huge deficit that, uh, Justified Lenin Moreno and taking these neoliberal uh, austerity measures and in Bolivia it was the claim that the electoral tribunal because it had not updated the quick count reporting on the website of the uh, electoral tribunal that this that they had stopped counting. And this is it's a key difference that just because it's not being updated on you know, the publicly for the for you to watch live doesn't mean that the counting has stopped. And the international media has repeatedly just recently with CNN on there, what you need to know about Bolivia, they, they, they spread this falsehood. And in fact, you know, what you have in Bolivia, which no corporate journalists are willing to admit, even though it's, it's a fact for anyone who knows Bolivia, that the rural areas, tend to be overwhelmingly pro mass, pro-Morales. And they, it, it, all, the votes take longer to come in. And as the CEPR showed, the, the, the margin of, of uh, support for Morales and these later coming votes... Was was huge, you know. in in Cochabamba alone, it was some fifty-something percent to thirty. Where before Camacho, I mean, excuse me, not Camacho, uh, Carlos Mesa, the candidate, had a a significant lead. So it it was. This is a completely explainable. That there is, there's no statistically analyzing it. It's completely reasonable and explainable that Morales won by a ten-point margin, sufficient to secure reelection without a runoff. And this is a fact that is. Systemat- systematically concealed by the corporate media.
0: So I have a really depressing question to ask you. You write the evidence-free fraud allegations against Evo Morales from part of a new, now-familiar script, forum part of a now-familiar script employed repeatedly against Venezuela. Last year, the Trump administration and its hard-right opposition proxies preemptively refused to recognize the results of Venezuela's presidential election despite opposition candidate Henry Falcón Reaching an agreement on electoral guarantees with the government, Falcone at the time, the highest polling opposition figure, according to widely cited anti-government pollster data analysis, was reportedly threatened with sanctions by Washington for daring to defy the U.S.-backed boycott. So right now in Venezuela, where you are, who has more control over Venezuela, the Venezuelan government or the U.S. and the Trump administration?
2: I, mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, beginning, uh, the month of November before Evo was overthrown, it, it was interesting that, you know, when you look at what's going on in U.S. client regimes, you know, and the, the crises faced by Bolivia, the massive, uh, excuse me, the crisis faced by the Bolsonaro government in Brazil with these revelations, that scandal, the, re- the release of Lula, the, the, um, Chile, the massive uprisings, the, the utter discrediting of Lenin Moreno following the rebellion there, the, the, the revolt in Haiti. The, um, they, Ma- Venezuela actually appears to be one of the more stable countries in many ways. You know, the, in the beginning of the year, Venez- Maduro was uh, characterized by the media as a tropical Saddam Hussein, who was you know, awaiting his imminent overthrow and then by the end of the year all of the right wing leaders throughout the continent are accusing him of being the mastermind behind the protests you know, along with Russia and China, et cetera, and Cuba, you know, which is utterly absurd. So I, I think that currently we'll see, because on saturday the venezuelan opposition is taking to the streets once again and they're they're calling to repeat you know what just happened in bolivia in venezuela and tackle the government but I, I don't think that they will succeed they might have a few days of protest but you know the, the reality is that you know, unlike bolivia it appears the military is firmly on the side of the government. There are no cracks there. So I, I think that this will just be another you know, media show, a media circus, which will be will gain massive headlines. Uh, look for government repression, government crackdown, etc. And then of course this is going to fade, and we'll go. We'll enter the holidays, and no one will remember it ever happened. And by will once again uh, fade into obscurity, as he has largely been since he stood up in. A plaza in on uh, the jet twenty January twenty-third and proclaimed himself president and you know clearly I mean his main constituency being the corporate journalists and uh Western imperial leaders.
0: One last question for you, Lucas. We've been speaking with journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner, who posted the Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting articles, whitewashing neoliberal repression in Chile and Ecuador, and media concealed Chile's state criminality delegitimized Bolivian democracy. Lucas has been on our show several times in the past. You can find all of the interviews that we've done with Lucas at our website, hell.com. All you have to do is search on his name, Kerner, K-O-E-R-N-E-R. You can follow Lucas on Twitter at LM underscore Kerner. And you can regularly find his writing not only at Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting at fair.org, but also at venezuelanalysis.com. We've been speaking to Lucas, who is in Caracas, Venezuela. One last question for you, Lucas. And as always, our final question is the question from Hell. The question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response. You write corporate journalists will most likely continue to muffle themselves vis-a-vis repressive U.S. client states in the same way that they systematically conceal the impact of Washington sanctions on Venezuela, which are estimated to have already killed 40,000 Venezuelans since 2017. If the first casualty of war is truth, it's self-anointed purveyors and the international media have much blood on their hands. Indeed. To what degree do you think U.S. foreign policy just sucks because the free U.S. press refuses to report on how much U.S. foreign policy sucks? Do they hate us because our media does not report the truth to voters about how horrible U.S. foreign policy is?
2: I think that, well, again, I think that the point is U.S. foreign policy is absolutely criminal, you know, on its own, that and that the media is a key accomplice do this, but I, I think that the, the key point here is that if you had a fraction, maybe one, maybe five percent, or you know, ten percent of corporate journalists who were to actually do their jobs and consistently report on you know state criminality currently going on in Chile or the coup in Bolivia and call it by its name or any number of U.S. wars and criminal interventions abroad this might actually change the, cons- the public consensus in the United States on these issues. Because if you look at, you know, as, as Chomsky has repeatedly cited, you look at you know the, the polls in other countries, they're largely, they're very clear about what, what the United States' is role in the world is, you know, it, the crimes that it commits against their countries. But in the United States, you know, it's we have this, you know, permanent machine of propaganda, of manufacturing consent, and that, you know, if, corporate journalists, you know, a small fraction of them, one in 10, you know, one in 20 did their jobs and reported on these issues consistently, you, you actually could change the conversation. And you mentioned Bernie Sanders. These kind, if you actually had politicians like Bernie Sanders, you know, with that stature, like AOC, consistently speaking out against U.S. imperialism, we really could stop this imperial death machine and this is what we have to keep fighting for and i think that it's important that we are beginning to change the conversation but you know the the fact is we cannot expect the media corporate journalists to wake up and begin begin to do that reporting that's why we have to keep exposing them and building movements that are going to pressure people like bernie sanders like aoc like uh... omar to take a stint
0: And you know, Lucas, one thing that I keep seeing repeated in the New York Times is that uh, there was an op-ed by uh, Carol Pires who said that uh, Bolsonaro was not facing any opposition other than from within his own party. That completely ignores the fact that there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people on, on the streets of Brazil several times so far during his very short administration. And then in the reports on the first reports on the uprising in Chile, they were saying nobody would ever expect any kind of opposition or uprising in Chile because everything's going so well. Uh, So nobody would ever expect this. Totally ignoring the last several months and a few years of huge protests in Chile. It just amazes me that the New York Times has these reporters who clearly are purposely erasing the fact that protests were taking place against the Chilean government and the Brazilian government. And it just astounds me that that would be so, that they would erase those people from reality?
2: I think that's it's important and it's the same thing that MSNBC did with the teacher strikes last year. That They completely uh, censored it almost entirely. And I think the, the function of corporate media is to blind us from actual people's rebellions, that people are really rising up and organizing around us, just that we can't see it. And you know, this is why we have to build alternative media and you know, recapture, reappropriate forms of social media so that we can see that we are not alone, that we do have comrades around the world, brothers and sisters who are fighting for, you know, for emancipation. And we should never forget that.
0: Enjoy the rest of your day, Lucas and Caracas. I always really appreciate you, you being on our show. Again, I think this is like your seventh time on the show, sixth, seventh. I don't know. I lost, I've lost count. But you know I'm going to be bugging you in the near future to have you back on and bugging you so you can help us uh, maybe line up some other guests for uh, covering South American issues because you've been doing such a great job for us. Thanks so much for being on the show, and we'll talk to you soon.
2: No problem, Chuck. Always a pleasure.
0: All right. Have a good one. Take care. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. Coming up, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week's question from hell is... Where are you hiding your drugs? Where are you hiding your jug- drugs? Or jugs? I'm going to hide my drugs. This week's winner gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive filled with 25 interviews we've done in the 2000s that are a great introduction to the show or recap for those who have been listening this whole time. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. Alex, I know you have more answers from the listeners for this week's question from hell.
1: This week's question from hell is, where are you hiding all your drugs? Victor H. says, in the O pair I brought over from Slovenia. It's an amazing what you can do to an au pair really teaches them our culture when you use them as a drug mule. Jeremy T says, in the form of socially and culturally acceptable mind-altering substances, so that their usage does not result in character assassination attempts, and I can pretend that I'm better than those damn hippies. Where are you hiding your drugs? Aaron D says, in the in my sole USB C port allotted to me by the Apple Corporation. Chris C says, behind a framed x-ray of my ass. Oh, I got to delete that. one. Chris, thanks. Uh, Andrew T. says, in my checkered past. (laughs) That's very good, Andrew T. Uh, Jason B. says, look, I told you before, you pay like everyone else. (laughs) William C. says, in my head. Anja H. says, in the void in my soul that capitalist social relations have made. And Fergus Z. says behind the elephant in the room.
0: Hey, I wonder what ever happened to Jim Schultz in Bamba, Bolivia. I should get in contact with him again. He used to be our correspondent in Bolivia back in the early 2000s and in the rise of Evo. So maybe I can find somebody to talk about Bolivia from Jim Schultz.
1: Oh, I got Jeffy, too.
0: Oh, okay. Um, That's really... In My Checkered Past is really great. That's a really good one. Uh, Okay, so... uh, Keep listening throughout today's show to see if you've won the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive. And if you don't, you can always find it in our store at thisishell.com when you click on the word support. Right before we started today's show, I got an email And I'm wondering if this is from the same Andrew who said my checkered past Right before we started today's show, I got an email about a monologue I did a couple weeks ago On Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager who scolded her elders at the UN Climate Action Summit I wondered why they would invite Greta to berate them Until I realized they wouldn't have never invited her if she was a real challenge to their power Andrew writes to us at chuck I thought your monologue on Greta Thunberg was really, really bleak and right on the money. The day after listening, I saw this headline that really sums up how movements are co-opted and demobilized. Andrew then links to an article at The Guardian by Emily Holden, headlined, Greta Thunberg leaves U.S. with simple climate crisis message. Vote. Which is weird because I've watched that speech at the U.N. and I don't remember her ever saying anything about voting. Andrew adds, that's why this Is hell emily holden does quote greta saying we must realize this is a crisis and we must do what we can now to spread awareness about this and to put pressure on the people in power and especially the us has an election coming up soon and it's very important that for everyone who can vote vote so holden went from one quote about voting to believing greta's main message was voting no Her main message was stop contributing to climate change and start challenging those who are in power. Now, the fact that this was somehow been boiled down to voting, distracting even from the issue of climate change, is exactly why the UN Climate Action Summit apparently invited Greta. They knew her message would be co-opted, would be watered down, and in the end... We'd all still have that image of the lone girl protesting by herself without a movement to support her as she stands lonely against climate change. No, the revolution will not be tele- televised, but you can hear it every week right here on "This is Hell." Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line One? Two
2: You know what to do. Now. One
1: more time Come without her.
3: matters welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink why does it matter we can ask this question about a variety of phenomena why does it matter if the universe is drifting apart why does it matter if a person dies because of an inability to access food or medicine why does it matter if we believe art does or doesn't matter why does it matter if the blue whale goes extinct why does it matter what gravity is Why does it matter if hundreds of millions of people are suffering? Why do things matter? Can things matter less than they do now? Can they matter more? Can I get things that matter to me to matter to a greater number of people? Fuck me. I'm sorry, I'm going to begin again. matters but one of the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink why does it matter we can ask this question about a variety of phenomena why does it matter if the universe is drifting apart why does it matter if a person dies because of an inability to access food or medicine why does it matter if we believe art does or doesn't matter why does it matter if the blue whale goes extinct why does it matter what gravity is why does it matter if hundreds of millions of people are suffering Why do things matter? Can things matter less than they do now? Can they matter more? Can I get things that matter to me to matter to a greater number of people than currently? If I do, will that matter? Who matters? What matters? Who matters to whom? What matters to whom? Does mattering to another person matter? The moon looked very far away the night I began writing this, farther away than usual, lost way up in the clouds. Does it matter how far away the moon is? Did anyone else see the moon that way that night? Would it be enough if I were the only one seeing the moon that way that night and experiencing it the way I did or close to it? Abraham Maslow, the guy with the hierarchy of needs, put a high value on the self-sufficient experience, the non-striving action. I think... Because self-actualization mattered so much to him, his reputation suffers among those who see, in his thinking, the spark of our isolating, anti-collectivist self-help industry. And they're not necessarily wrong, although it's advisable to remember the adaptability of capitalism to co-opt nearly anything, especially something as ephemeral as psychology, and twist it into an engine of greed and profit. It's equally important to recognize that Maslow's contribution to humanist psychology arose from his humanism, his sense that other people's well-being matters, and others' well-being mattering is part of one's experience of oneself as being one's best self. We probably owe anything humane and kind in the practice of psychology today, as opposed to the merely schematic, product-oriented, and technical, partially to him. Maslow stressed that the hierarchy of needs was not a necessarily uh, chronological hierarchy of development, nor was it to be interpreted as a hierarchy of people or their worth. I interpret it more as a diagram of what what might matter to people as they move along an experiential spectrum, as their experiences become deep, rich, comfortable, and joyful, as opposed to stressed, judged, and materially deprived. Maslow was not a social Darwinist. He didn't believe self-actualization was something someone deserved, nor that being less than self-actualized was due to power or economic status, or vice versa. One can experience oneself as being one's best self regardless of whether one is a billionaire or a sweatshop laborer. The respective opportunities for modes of survival are different, to say the least, but within the context of each lot in life, Why the possibilities for growth and attaining self-understanding. Billionaires can waste their potential or feel they have, while exploited people can achieve the pinnacle of being human they were born to be, or at least feel they have. As a theory of anything, Maslow's is crammed with value judgments. Who's to say what's a deep, complex, rich way to be? Who is to decide if someone has achieved their potential? If it's left up to each of us to decide... Why don't we all just decide we're perfect the way we are? Or at least cut ourselves some slack. Life is tough. People make mistakes. Give yourself a break. Look how long you've lasted already. That's pretty damn good. If you're confused, lonely, angry, troubled in mind, and in trouble with others, who's to say that's not exactly the way you should be? Are we to bow to what others think we should be? Who are these other people anyway? A friend of mine once asserted, in a very unwise moment, that he didn't believe in the idea that capitalism convinces the masses they need or want things they actually don't need or want. A little later the same day, in a different conversation, he said that cinema audiences, when exposed to great films, actually appreciate them more than they think they will, but unfortunately, Hollywood has habituated and indoctrinated them to want shallow, formulaic entertainment. I pointed out the contradiction with his earlier statement, which he understood immediately, but as is the habit of many gregarious intelligent people when an ironic example of their own philosophical incoherence is brought to their attention, he just chuckled a little and changed the subject, rather than congratulate me on my insightful observation. But I didn't mind, as long as we both knew what had transpired, what did it matter? It seems pretty evident, though, that the pressures inherent in life under capitalism affects people's motivations and therefore the choices they make. It seems as though if you're looking to be your best, most just, calmest, most at-peace self, you're going to make different choices if you are under pressure to compete for resources, or if you're deprived of resources, or if you've got so many more resources than most everyone else that it boggles the mind than if you're living in a more equitable society in which a few insanely wealthy people aren't hoarding all the resources and destroying the resources of other communities and stabbing their competitors in the back and manipulating the policies of governments to further enrich themselves and solidify control over things and people. So what matters is all relative. It depends on who you are inside but also on who the people outside of you want to allow you to be. What kind of thoughts does society allow you to think? What does the society's history allow it to discuss about itself and how? It was difficult to question the divinity of Jesus in late medieval England, just as it's difficult to think of what's possible outside the paradigm that's been the dominant way of thinking about our options for hundreds of years. Nowhere in Maslow's hierarchy does a car appear. There's the need for independence and self-sufficiency, that's there, but a car is just a very expensive, environmentally corrosive way to feel independent. Nevertheless, a lot of people in the USA would put an internal combustion vehicle in their own personal needs pyramid. As privileged as I am, as a white cis hetero male of European ancestry, I feel there are things I'm missing that some others possess as accidents of the time and place of our births. The home where I grew up is completely alien to me now. The skills I possess often steer me away from possibilities that might make my life quieter, might bring me into contact with cleaner air and water and a more rural landscape. The majority of my family live miles and miles away. The way I was brought up to speak and the fact I wasn't taught multiple languages at an early age limit the kind of people I can easily relate to. The loudness of my surroundings has damaged my hearing. I'm not complaining, although I was raised to excel at it. I'm just observing that certain aspects of my life outside my control have steered me toward becoming one kind of person and not another. Maslow believed in the human tendency toward desiring self-actualization. And I believe Karl Marx might have believed something similar or else he wouldn't have written that the alienation of people from their essential personhood is a negative consequence of living under an economic system that pits them against each other. It's not the same thing as Martin Luther King's optimism that the arc of history bends towards justice, but it seems an optimistic view all the same. These days, it seems the humans and the environments in which they might achieve their essential personhood and pursue self-actualization most fruitfully – are under constant attack from organizations and oligarchs who want ever more control over resources and beings. Under such circumstances, an optimistic viewpoint is hard to locate. Yet even in such a situation, I see friends of mine exhibiting the hallmarks of what Maslow would have called self-actualization. They have loving friends and families. They make art. They work to make the lives of those less fortunate better. And that matters to me. I want to know that even people I can relate to who feel at times quite helpless in the face of the authorities' current cruelty, even while they fortunately don't suffer the worst of it, even they can satisfy some of the most transcendent desires humans have ever felt. I don't know if it matters to anyone that I feel this way. Right now it's enough that it matters to me. Well, it's enough for me, anyway. This has been the Moment of Truth.
0: Good day. All right, Jeffy, Alex has to pick up his kid, and I got to meet a locksmith, so uh, until next time. All right, what? Stay beautiful. Okay. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. This week's question from Hell is, where are you hiding your drugs? Where are you hiding your drugs? Alex, do you have more of the answers to this week's question from Hell? Uh,
1: We've got two more. Uh, Dan O. says, nice try, DEA. <laughs> and Daniel F. says... At 2251 West Devon. I just keep it labeled in the pile.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Uh, all right. So my answer to this week's question from L is, where are you hiding your drugs? Same place I've been stashing my drugs since I was a teenager. In a hollowed-out book, and there's close to a thousand books at my house, and another few hundred here at the office. So good luck figuring out which book has my stash. That makes this week's winner. I gotta go with Andrew T. saying that. Uh, where does he hide his drugs in his checkered past? That is definitely the winner. You have won the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive filled with 25 interviews we've done in the 2000s, and you will be receiving that shortly in the mail as soon as you message us via Facebook. Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio, your mailing address. Join us tomorrow and every Wednesday or tomorrow, today. Join us today and every Wednesday evening for This Is Hell office hours, our weekly meet and greet that's more a drink and think. Most of the staff and crew of This Is Hell will be there, meet other listeners who you share something in common, and that's your joy for This Is Hell. Drop by today, get some This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert public ads. See how all our listeners are subverting ads by going to our Instagram account at This Is Hell Radio. So join us this evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, beginning at about 6 p.m., going till around 9 p.m. It's going to be really cold outside. So what better place to be indoors than to be in a bar? News that scares the news. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, Jonah Tomco smith Alex, who's
1: on Tuesday's two-hour live streaming show beginning at 2 p.m. Chicago time at hell. Uh, half the show will be Kianga Yamada-Taylor back on the show to talk about her book, Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership.
0: And uh, what about Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central, around a one-hour show at thisishell.com? Uh, I think
1: we got Daniel Aldana Cohen. I'm still working on that uh, to talk about the big book that we're going to actually be doing a series on um, called A Planet to Win, The Case for uh, the Green New Deal.
0: And then on Friday at 10 a.m., we will be speaking with former CIA case officer turned whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling, who is author of Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. Uh, and any idea what we're doing? for patreon tomorrow
1: at what time uh howard's in i'm digging into the archives i wanted to revisit one of the interviews i think you talked to howard's Zinn like seven times yeah I yeah think. so yeah. i'm looking for a howard's in so we'll be uh, doing howard's Zinn. <laughs> and uh thank you pre s oh i know pre s thank you christian v thank you austin m and thank you benjamin w
0: for all joining us on patreon please subscribe to our patreon show uh we are airing that tomorrow at what time 10 a.m is that when the patreon show is tomorrow Alex? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. What time works for you? Uh, 10 a.m. All right, I'll give a try. All right, <laughs> we'll see how that works. So please subscribe to our Patreon show at patreon.com is thisishell, where every week you get a classic interview as well as a new monologue by me. Listening live is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. Well, first of all, I want to thank Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Jonah Tomco smith for also producing. Theron Humiston for fixing our studio so we can do the show this week. Ronaldo Magaldi for his uh, Rotten History. Jeff Dorchin for the moment of truth. Also, thanks to our guest, Lucas Kerner, on uh, Venezuela, South America, and all the coups that the United States are not reporting. Thanks to Brian Muir who told us what is really happening in Brazil when it comes to the freedom that is now being experienced by former President Lula. Thanks to political theorist Wendy Brown, author of In the Ruins of Neoliberalism. And thanks to Liza Featherstone, who we talked to about uh, misogyny, as well as why civil rights in the United States seem to be fading. Eating away as it, shortly after the Soviet or the Berlin Wall fell. This week's hangover cure is pretending that you don't have a hangover cure, which is just stupid. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show, on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid is on my butt
3: uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries
2: to put me on a hell ride.